0: Fail is a four-letter word that most of us avoid like the plague. We live in a society that is obsessed with achievement, yet has zero tolerance for failure. But any successful person will tell you that regular and consistent failure is not only part of the path to success, failure is the path. Without embracing failure, you are never going to learn how to overcome obstacles or become resilient in the face of adversity, thus never achieving your goals. You don't get to choose your obstacles, so when obstacles choose you, you have to be ready. That was certainly the case with today's guest, Chinna Balachandran. In 2019, Chinna was suddenly and unexpectedly afflicted with an acute subdural hematoma, or in layman's terms, a slow brain bleed that has a mortality rate of 50 to 90 percent. Let me say that again, 50 to 90 percent. His brain bleed was so severe that his brain stem compressed into his spinal cord, and when he awoke from emergency brain surgery, he found himself paralyzed on the left side of his body, he was unsure if he had any cognitive abilities, and he was frankly incapable of taking care of himself. And now just two years later, Chinna is back to work as a school psychologist. He's an advocate for neurotrauma survivors. He's newly married. And get this, he has competed on American Ninja Warrior for not one, but two seasons. His recovery on paper is nothing short of miraculous, but when you hear him talk and tell his story, he tells it as a simple practice of accepting where he was day after day after day, taking tiny steps forwards and celebrating the small wins. Failure was simply a stepping stone on the road to his success. Though I sincerely hope you never have to endure a traumatic brain injury, the lessons learned from this conversation apply to any obstacles you might encounter in your life. Prepare to be inspired and armed with practical strategies to take you on your own road to success, which by the way, is going to include a lot of failure. All right, without further ado, my conversation with American Ninja Warrior, Chinna (laughs) Balachandran. I'm here today with Chinna Balachandran who is a school psychologist he's an advocate for neurotrauma survivors he also happens to be a neurotrauma survivor himself which we are going to talk a whole lot more about and you are a two-time competitor on American Ninja Warrior all of which we're going to dive into a whole lot deeper in an interview today so Chinna it is a pleasure to have you here today and I'm really excited to allow you to tell your story and share it with my listeners.
1: Appreciate it. Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: So here's the, I'm going to give a a little bit of a brief overview of how you ended up on the show because I'm going to admit it's a tiny bit embarrassing. I haven't told you the story yet. So I saw your story as one of the featured packages on American Ninja Warrior when it aired and I remember watching it and thinking, this story is absolutely unbelievable. This is somebody that has to be on my show. As you know, you've kind of gone through a few of my past episodes, and one of my favorite interviews was with uh, Jimmy Choi, um, who's a Parkinson's uh, survivor that is a uh, multi-American Ninja Warrior athlete as well. Um, And I was thinking, oh, this is perfect. It belongs in the same category of the Jimmy Choi type interviews that I do. And I did absolutely nothing. I didn't put it on a board. I didn't set a reminder. I didn't put on a to-do list. And all of a sudden, it just kind of flew out of my brain. And then a few months ago, I was following Jimmy Choi's Instagram. And there was a picture of the two of you when he talked about how you're both uh, brain trauma survivors and survivors of these things. I'm like, oh my God, this sounds amazing. Tell me more about this person's story. So Jimmy sent me a message and I'm like, oh my God, I'm such an ass. This is the guy that I was going to reach out to like a year ago and I totally forgot. So the point being, you should have been on this show like a year ago, but because of my absent-mindedness, it was actually thanks to Jimmy Choi and his Instagram that I realized this guy's got to be on because there's a reason I saw that post on that given day. And I remember this story and I said, people have to hear about what you have overcome. So that's kind of my embarrassing version of why you're here as opposed to you probably should have been on here like a year ago.
1: I'm actually appreciative that we waited a year to do it because I genuinely had no clue what I was doing on Ninja Warrior the first time that they showed me. And now after a year of having been one, preparing for the sport, and then two, getting to become a bit more familiar with some of the faces and, and some of the, the really salient parts of Ninja that have applied to the other parts of my life, I feel like this will be a, a better interview.
0: Yeah. Okay, great. Well, then I'm I'm glad to hear that. And if we want to have a long involved conversation about not being prepared for American Ninja Warrior, boy, can I dive (laughs) into that one myself? Um, Because as uh, many of my longtime listeners know, I too am a, a rookie of American Ninja Warrior. First run did not go well at all. And what I learned almost immediately in the flash of a few seconds is you think you can be as prepared as possible for something. And then you realize how unprepared you really are. You check off all the boxes. I've worked on the forearm strength, and I've worked on the chaise, and I've worked on balance like years and years of getting ready. And then you're like, oh, crap, I didn't focus on this thing. And I'm wet. All right. So now it's time to start over. Right. So it really kind of puts into focus your habits and your behaviors and most importantly, your mindsets. And we're going to talk about all of those. But before we get right to kind of the meat of the interview, which is understanding what your uh, your story is and how it is that you got on American Ninja Warrior and why they picked you, I actually want to get to know a little bit more about Chinna before any of this happened. Because in the research, it's always about your story begins when you had a subdural hematoma, which is a very severe brain injury. And we'll talk more about that later and how like, The prognosis is you should be dead right now. Um, But I want to know more about you before that, because I know that you originally came from the Midwest. You flew out to LA, and I'm sure there are reasons for that. There were dreams in your heart. So tell me more about your story, about what brought you out to Los Angeles before your real story begins.
1: Sure. So I met my now wife when we were in graduate school as competitors at the University of Texas uh, for their school psychology program. And we go through our training. I begin practicing in Austin, Texas, and she continues in school to get her doctorate. And as part of that, she has a training opportunity that brings us to LA, uh, where she gets involved as a clinical psychologist in some hospital level systems. And so I moved to this new city with her, keeping my job in Austin, working as a school psychologist at a, it, it was actually the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired. Uh, I loved that job, didn't want to let it go, so worked remote for a bit, but was in this new city for one person without really knowing any other people. And so me having been just a hobby athlete throughout my life, um, you know, played some team sports growing up, football, tennis in high school, uh, but had always been interested in boxing. And there happened to be a boxing club in the neighborhood that we moved to in L.A. So I figured like, this has been something I've been curious about for a bit. Like, Why don't I go and check it out? And sure enough, I fell in love with the sport and got really immersed in it for a few years. Um, There's a great amateur boxing scene in LA and some pretty fun guys who are getting ready for their own fights that were in this club with me. But I myself just kept it at the hobby level, never intended to go beyond that. But this does seem like a natural segue to share how I did actually find myself on this ninja path in sort of a falling backwards way. Uh, me being a hobby boxer, I would go in and I'd spar with some guys who were getting their amateur game going. And one Sunday, January 20th, 2019 I went for a spar, didn't think too much of it aside from like, this was a bit of a harder spar than usual. Um, but you know, there was no moment of knockdown, no knockout. Uh, I was on my feet the whole time. Had conversations with people. Didn't think anything was amiss until I drove home, spoke to my, she was my girlfriend at the time, um, and got in the shower. And about ninety minutes after the spar had ended, I realized I'm seeing dark circles out of both of my eyes, and I'm like, okay, something is happening neurologically. And by the time I finished the shower, I had vomited, which. In case any of your listeners need to know this, if you've ever taken a blow to the head and you've vomited, that is an indicator that you need to go to a hospital immediately. So that's going through my mind. And I know, okay, I got to go figure out some help. Um, and my wife is in the next room on a work call. So unfortunately, it was just me uh, in the bathroom as my body is beginning to shut down. And I don't really know what's happening, but I do know I can't, I'm losing the ability to speak. I'm paralyzed on the left side of my body and I'm in and out of consciousness now. So I get her attention by thrashing loudly enough on the floor. She makes the life-saving call to 911 and informs the paramedics that I was a boxer and I was taking blows to the head, which was really critical information because I was originally going to be taken to the closest hospital down the street, but there's actually only one hospital in LA that treats neurotrauma. And so... Anyways, I can go into the the multiple miracles that resulted in me being here a bit later, but all this information put me in front of a doctor who made a life or death decision to operate on me, and it ended up being the right one. I had this emergency brain surgery that saved my life and saved a lot of functioning. But yeah, that was a long-winded way to tell you about who I was before LA.
0: So let, let me ask you this cuz I I I think that uh, obviously the majority of what we're going to talk about today is going to be post brain injury recovery, you know, talking about the prognosis and how it was so dire. And really the, the elephant in the room is the questions everybody's asking. Like, if you're supposed to be dead, how did you become an American Ninja Warrior, right? That's, a, that's the big question. But I want to ask a question that I don't know if anybody has ever asked you before, and maybe they have, and I just haven't found it. But what I'm really intrigued by, and I can't explain any of this, and you can say it's faith or religion or the universe, whatever it is. I don't believe it's a coincidence that before this injury, you were dealing with people That had disabilities. So I'd like to know more about what drew you to not only psychology but working with deaf and blind children. Being a school psychologist
1: really jumped out to me because I I had a good school experience growing up. I think it's important to give back. It's not specifically a religious thing. I did grow up in the Hindu temple and I appreciate having that upbringing going through Sunday school but I wouldn't call myself like an overly religious person. It's more so I just believe in believing the world a little bit better than when you found it. And working as a school psychologist and getting my training experiences led me to really appreciate working for the most underrepresented, the most voiceless of people, like people with visual impairments and deafblindness and sensory impairments. And that became a really satisfying thing for me. In Texas. And then now here in LA, I'm working in a inpatient residential treatment facility for adolescents. So it's a psychiatric hospital for kids who have been through the kinds of things that really marginalize you as a demographic, uh, being through the foster system, being uh, homeless, child sexual commercial exploitation of children, uh, CSEC, a lot of things that big picture society kind of overlooks. And I think it's really important to advocate for the little guy.
0: And I'm interested in where that comes from, because I always I'm always trying to understand how things work. I've been this way since I was literally a toddler. I pointed things and I it's not just about what is it; it is how does it work, whether it's a gear or a machine or taking things apart. And when you said I had a really good school upbringing, that actually makes me wonder what would drive you to decide that I want to be a part of a career that's so challenging. Because to say not only that I want to be a school psychologist, but now you're working with adolescents that have been through all this trauma, that cannot be easy. You can't wake up and say, well, another easy nine to five at the job. Like You have to be totally invested in that. And I'm curious what drives you and what your deeper why is to choose something like that that's so challenging. I
1: love this question. And to be honest, uh, if I have been asked it before, I don't, it's not coming to me. But what Jumps out right now is well. They need it. They they need help. Uh, these people are going to be suffering, whether people like me are in their lives or not. But I am here with this opportunity and was kind of like drawn towards this thing to give me the training to be in a position to maybe do something for them. And if these people were going to be struggling and suffering anyways, then. Yeah, we should help.
0: Well, and I love all that. And again, I'm not going to get into spirituality or specific religions or whatnot, um, but I can be very clear about one thing that I believe in personally, and I think it actually very similar to Hindu religion and a lot of Eastern religions. I believe in karma. I think that most religions, whatever they are, it's just their own version in some way, shape, or form of karma where certain actions lead to certain reactions and whether it's afterlife or whatever it is, reincarnation. Um, but I don't think it's a coincidence that you chose such a rewarding career that's about giving back to people. And you ended up in a situation where I believe the percentage was far over 50% of people that have a subdural hematoma not only you know live poor lives, they're essentially dead or they're vegetables. Is that correct? That's right. It's. Uh, I don't think that's a coincidence.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, the doctor who saved me would tell you that there are no coincidences in this world. Uh, so I think he also shares your attitude about karma and, and this general spirit that there's, there's meaning when you look for it.
0: Well, knowing all of this, knowing kind of the the path to, to get to kind of where your story begins, so to speak, at least the, the public facing story that you've told many times and is told on American Ninja Warrior starts with, I have a subdural hematoma. And for anybody that doesn't know, and I'm not going to even pretend to explain it, but it's essentially your brain is bleeding on the inside and swelling up and it's filling the entire space inside your skull and you're, there's just there's no more room to expand. And it's a very, very bad thing. That was thing. actually just about it, Zach. You, you oh, okay. well then it. <laughs> I, well, I've, I've watched a lot of house episodes. So you know, I, I consider myself kind of a junior uh, medical professional because I've seen every episode of house. So what can we do? Oh, wow. Uh, but um, that having been said, like we talked about, the prognosis is incredibly different and not only that um, but you can talk a little bit more about the actual procedure where in short they cut out like a third of your skull like i'm not talking an incision i mean like it's just gone
1: right so just as you uh so beautifully explained what that injury is a subdural hematoma is it's describing a brain bleed and when there's too much intracranial pressure from all this blood and cerebrospinal fluid that shouldn't be there the brain is going to it's going to move and you're, it's going to compress. Your brainstem is going to compress into your spinal cord. Your brain doesn't have a lot of wiggle room. And so, the biggest issue that comes with these bleeds, which don't always need surgery, is that those who do need surgery need to get some extra space for their brain to swell and to accommodate all of that extra blood. And that's what this surgeon did for me he removed about a third of my skull, it was called the skull flap, to give my brain space to swell. What happened while my brain was swelling was, it was kind of, it's, it's easier to explain it as like a hard reset, except with your body. I had basically nothing when I came out of brain surgery. Um, you know, So I explained earlier, I was taken to the hospital, rushed into surgery, I came do briefly once to a room full of people saying, don't move, don't move. You've had a brain bleed and you're in a scanner right now. And then I have one thought, which is like, okay, well, my life's going to be different. And then they put me back under and I wake up to a room full of nurses screaming, don't move, don't move. There's no bone, which I didn't know what that meant, but that meant that they had removed this big slice of skull and there was nothing there to protect it because my brain needed to push out. And actually immediately after they took that slice of skull out, you couldn't really tell that I had had anything done at all because my brain was so swollen that it made up for the space where the bone would have been. And it continued to swell out for some time until finally, when I was ready for the bone to be reattached, there was like a very clear concavity in my head. And that was one of the first pictures of my injury to go viral on Reddit. The physical things that were happening for me, if I didn't already say this, my brainstem compressing into my spinal cord meant that, like all those basic brainstem functions, were now impaired. So that's your breathing, your your heartbeat, uh, controlling vomiting, the use of the small muscles in your eye, your balance, your states of consciousness, your body temperature—all of those things had left me. So after first coming to. I mean, my first thought was of my wife who was there and waiting for me and they brought her in and that's how they calmed me down. Um, really savvy nurse who is like, hey, wait, your wife's name, it's Erica, right? She's here with you and your parents, they're from Chicago, right? They're flying to be with you. And that's that was my first like, okay, well, exhale. But pain aside, I, I won't get into the pain because you can just assume that that is... Uh, a painful thing to go through. I could only stay awake for maybe 30 minutes maximum a day because of those states of consciousness. I had really excruciating nerve pain in my legs. Like I wasn't sure if I'd be able to move my legs again. And I definitely couldn't move the left side of my body. The brain bleed was on the right side of my brain. And so everything's cross up there. That means the, the left side of your body is what's going to be affected by it. So I lost the use of my arm. I lost the use of my leg. I had to relearn how to walk. I couldn't bathe myself. I was a fall risk. The list of things that I couldn't do would be it would be shorter to tell you the things that I was cleared to do, which was basically nothing. But that's where it started. Uh, and yeah, that was what I woke up to. That was life then.
0: That's T-O-P-O. All right. So what I'm curious about, and I want to talk a whole lot more about from the point that you know you're quote unquote okay. So let me rephrase that. The point at which you know that you're still alive. From that point forwards, there's a whole lot of story. But there's a question that I want to to dig a little bit deeper into, and this is going to be similar to a conversation that I had with a guest named uh, David Fagenbaum. I don't know if I sent you uh, a a link to his podcast episode or not, and if I didn't, I probably should have. Um, But he uh, went through this one of the most inspirational stories I've ever heard. Um, He was a physician himself that got diagnosed with something called Castleman's disease, um, and he was basically on his deathbed five times over and over and over, over the course of several years. Like it's one of the most astounding stories. His book um, is amazing. Um, and what he went through is amazing. And He actually was the doctor that found the cure for his own disease because it was incurable. So it's an amazing story. Um, I'll link to it in the show notes if anybody wants to listen to it. It was episode 100. Um, but the most important takeaway for him from his book and from our interview was that every time he was on his deathbed, and this guy was in his 20s. He was not like in his 70s. Like he was a young guy with his whole life ahead of him. And there was one thought that he had every single time he's thinking, all right, well, that's it. I'm going to die. And I'm curious from the point that started happening to the point where you had consciousness, was there ever a moment where you wondered, is this it?
1: Oh, um, well, I'll say the most, first of all, that story. Oh my goodness. I need to look this episode up. It gave me goosebumps. What a, what an amazing story for me. Actually. It was, it was a little turned on its head because I didn't think I no was No pun intended, die. by
0: the way, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I get that a lot, actually. Oh, boy, the species at this wedding reception. I did not expect to be roasted so hard, but uh, a lot about the shape of my head. Um, the thing with me was that this freak accident and me being 29 at the time, I was like, there's well, no, I'm not going to die. I will wake up, surely. There's no... No way anything could have gone wrong. But it was only when my wife came into the ICU and said, hey, you made it that for the first time that it set upon me, like, oh, that probably wasn't taken for granted. So like, meanwhile, while I was being operated on and put under, the doctors were telling my wife, he's probably going to die. And then that changed to, well, he'll live, but he probably won't wake up. And then that became: if he does wake up, he won't be the same person. Um, so she got the news first, and then after coming out of surgery and being discharged from the hospital, I began to read up a bit more about just what I had faced. But of course, like I still wasn't quite right mentally and cognitively at the time. So I, the amount of information and what I chose to take in and how it was actually landing was a bit different. However, during the recovery itself and Shortly after being discharged, there were several times where, like after my first visit to the doctor and riding in a car, I had what I thought was a stroke and everything on the left side of my body drooped. And I was like, okay, well, now I'm dying. Or I if I stood up too fast, if I got hungry, I would have seizures. And I'm like, well, now I'm gonna die. It it happened several times because I I had a lot of those instances. And it was it was kind of similar to how you put it, both with words and in terms of the affect, all you could really do is say, like, this is it.
0: So I'm curious, having gone through that, and it sounds like while things were at their worst, you weren't even conscious of what was at stake. Everybody else thought it was a miracle that you were even alive. You just kind of came to and you're like, hey, everybody, what's up? So something happened? Like, so you didn't have that experience of seeing it ahead of you, but afterwards, you got a sense of, all right, so things were a lot worse than maybe I didn't experience because I wasn't conscious. And now I'm starting to have this thought. What I'm curious is when you were facing this idea of, oh, I'm, I'm very uh, mortal. And I now realize that I'm very weak. And any of these could be the time that I go, whether it was the seizure or anything else. Did you have thoughts when that happened? What were the the most pressing thoughts that kept coming up in your mind, knowing that that could potentially be at, at age 29?
1: I go back to having just had my wedding. I mean, I thought like I just want more time to love my wife. I want more time with my parents who thank God are both still with me and came and both lived with me and Erica in our one bedroom apartment. And so I was surrounded by them when it was happening and I could I wasn't alone, which is the most that I could ask for when those things would happen. But the thought would really just be I I just want more time with them. I shouldn't be putting them through this and I want more time with them.
0: So you weren't saying to yourself, man, I wish that I worked harder and longer hours at my job. That's just it, you know, And
1: I've often thought about how many times in life that I have I've struggled with like how much what is this work life balance? And I really value the things that I do at work. And as much as I value helping people, and that is something that I took away from my deathbed. It wasn't in the form of work or being a school psychologist.
0: And the, the reason I bring that up is because one of the most important takeaways from my conversation with David, which once again, I'll send you the link to it right after we're done and I'll make sure that there's a link in the show notes. Um, but it's basically the universal theme of everybody that's on their deathbed, whether it's suddenly or it's somebody that's at the end of their life and is going to die a natural death. They all say the same thing. I regret the chances that I didn't take. I don't regret the chances that I took. It's always about what are the things that I was too afraid to try that I didn't do and I now don't have the chance to do. Did you have any of that? Or was it just more about, I want more out of the time with the people that are the most important to me?
1: There was definitely some of like, I don't know why I thought work would be so important. And even a part that was like, even going into becoming a school psychologist, where I thought like maybe I'll reflect on life at the very end and say at least I help people, but it wasn't that for me either. It was I want I want my people. I want more time with them, and I was reaching out in person and virtually for it because it was all about people to me. It had nothing to do with earning a title, you know, doing whatever accomplishment uh, in in the work world or or anything uh, related to any particular accolade. It was just about like, oh, I should have told this person that I love them more. I should have visited so-and-so more. Um, it was all about the people in my life.
0: So now we have got me curious, and here's why I'm curious. Because you had this near-death experience that, frankly, you should have just either been dead or most likely a vegetable the rest of your life. And here you are speaking in complete sentences, able to walk, able to feed yourself, able to give a speech at your wedding, all of which is a miracle. And the most important thing to you is time with people, and you would never want to risk anything to lose that. So what in the hell led you to decide, I want to become an American Ninja Warrior? Because that seems kind of scary and kind of risky. That is a fantastic and totally fair question. Um, It also goes back to what we were just
1: talking about, about the chances that you didn't take and regretting a life half-lived. I, as a college kid, used to watch Ninja Warrior and think, oh, I could do that. And then one day my mother-in-law, texted me. It was like, Hey, I was watching Ninja Warrior and they're taking applications. And haven't you always said you could do that? That would be so fun. You should give it a shot. And I was like, you know what? Life is too short to not go for the things that you want to do. And for me, that's a shot at the Ninja Warrior course. And I still stand by it. If I get sketched out by something when I'm in training, then I won't do it. I have a helmet with me for the things that I'm not confident in and I'll wear it for some obstacles. But it also comes from a, a place of Ninja can kind of be a platform to get the message that I want to put out. And that's that you can still find some joy in life after something horrible happens. It doesn't have to be this high flying stunt show that I'm doing, but it doesn't have to be the end of the things that, that bring you joy.
0: So again, we're, what I'm sensing is there's this theme between your work and ninja warrior and everything else which is that i want to be the voice for the underrepresented but i also want to make sure that they know it's it's not always going to be this way right there's there's a light at the end of the tunnel and i think that's a really important mindset that i want to dig deeper into if we think about you know looking back in hindsight yeah, there, there are a whole lot of things that happened, but you got through it and now look at where you are. You're you know doing great and you've been a two-time American enjoyer. But something tells me that there was a time when you said to yourself, is this just gonna be the rest of my life where I'm gonna be drinking through a straw and I can't use my left arm and my legs are killing me and walking is a distant memory. So for somebody that's in it, right? For somebody, whatever their challenges, their obstacle and they're thinking, is my life ever going to get better? and they're terrified, is this all that it's gonna be? You've been there. So talk to me a little bit more about how you dealt with this emotion when you actually didn't know that things were gonna turn out the way that they did.
1: I mean, I think a big part of my story and something that I try to normalize is that there's no unconditional positive thinking and, and never letting any doubt creep in that results in a good outcome. You can't will yourself to this. There are so many people with the same injury as me who died simply by chance, or who have had less, um, I, I guess, for lack of a better term, like visually dazzling with the high flying stunts, uh, recoveries as me, and it's not for any lack of of want or will. Part of the reason that I'm doing this is also honoring. It's honoring the version of me that was bed bound and in this hospital bed, wondering if this would be the rest of my life, because you can't set. I didn't aspire to be an American Ninja Warrior. That was the last thing on my mind at all. I came from a past of enjoying to use my body for athletic endeavors, but I had to accept that maybe that part of my life was over. Maybe the part of my life where I can go and work and use my mind to make a living to provide for my family is over. Despair is part of it. And it kind of needs to be normalized. People who are going through it don't need to put on a happy face because that's more palatable to the people around them. Don't get lost in it. Don't let yourself wallow in despair and lose sight of any hope whatsoever because hope is everything. And that's also why I'm doing this is to maybe be that for someone else, but for the people who are going through it, it's okay to have that despair. Other people who haven't had these horrific circumstances, these These crazy, unimaginable health things going on aren't going to get it, but feel that, know that it's possible, and then do what you can from there. That's all it is. I I didn't dream of a recovery that could have gone this far, but it was just simply setting small goals and putting one foot in front of the other over and over, and then things just happened to work out for me.
0: Yeah, and I want to talk a lot more about this idea of setting small goals and moving forwards in little pieces every day. But the first thing that I want to point out that I think is so vitally important, not even vitally important, like it is essential if you have any interest in overcoming any form of obstacle or challenge, whatever the circumstances are, whether it was in your control, whether it wasn't, is you said the word accept. Right, And I think that what happens so often with people, and it doesn't just have to be with traumatic brain injuries or accidents or anything else, but when something is put upon somebody, they say, well, this wasn't my fault. But what they do is they don't see the difference between fault and responsibility. This wasn't your fault. I mean, somebody could say, well, yeah, you know, you chose to be a boxer and it was, you know, brain hemorrhage, but whatever. Like obviously this, if had you known this, you wouldn't have been a boxer. It just happened. And it's such an anomaly. So not your fault, but it sounds like what you decided to do fairly early on was say, I take responsibility and I accept the fact that this is now my new normal. Yes.
1: Yeah, completely. It's exactly that. I've said earlier what it means to figure out your new normal and that I had to accept what mine was for that day. And then the next day, I would try to push that new normal. But it's precisely
0: that. And when it comes to this idea of small goals, one of the things that uh, I've been teaching my students for years, and it's something that Jimmy Choi talked about, and it really seems to be kind of a a prevalent uh, theory or mindset that I see throughout the ninja community, is that your goal is not to be the best at anything on any given day, right? Like we've talked about uh, before we even started the call, and like I talk about all the time, it's not about I'm racing against others, it's that I'm running my own race. So talk a little bit more about this mindset of all I have to do today is be the tiniest bit better than I was yesterday.
1: I mean, I think it's applies to everybody regardless of neurotrauma. But when I was, me having dealt with the brain injury that I had, setting those small goals and having things be so concrete made it a lot easier to celebrate when I did meet those goals. And I think practicing gratitude and celebrating the journey that you're on and any incremental progress is everything. But not everybody is going to celebrate that they were awake for five minutes longer on Tuesday than they were on Monday, or that they were able to bathe themselves in the shower. But it did start there. It started with things as simple as not throwing up when I was in the car or being able to walk to a window and looking out without having vertigo, and then upping the ante to the next day, being able to walk down a hallway and turn my head while walking. And I think the same can be true for, for anybody setting any sort of goal. It was the same with me with Ninja, a sport that I had no background in whatsoever. And now I'm able to do some things that I'm proud of.
0: The basically what I have discovered, thanks largely in part to Ninja, but from talking to, to people like yourself and Jimmy and everybody else is essentially the secret formula to be successful at anything. And it seems like, oh my God, like what a crazy promise. Like nobody could have discovered that. But, and it's not something I've discovered. I've just extrapolated from other people that have discovered it and shared it in their own journeys. But essentially I broke it down into three steps. And this is something that uh, given what you've gone through, I want to see if this applies to your situation as well. And I think that it does. So the first step is that you need to establish what you are capable of doing right now comfortably. And for you, it might've been, I can sit in a car for 45 minutes comfortably At 46 minutes, I get uncomfortable and I think that I might need to throw up, right? So it's establishing the baseline. The second step is you need to find the hardest version of that same thing that you're capable of doing, but make it uncomfortable. So you're pushing towards something that you're capable of, but it's a lot harder. And then step three is you do that thing consistently until that becomes comfortable. And then you move the goalpost and you make it uncomfortable again. Would you say that's relatively accurate about how your journey worked from waking up, realizing that I can't walk, I can't move my arm, I can't eat, to all of a sudden you're, you know, swinging from bars and, you know, jumping on quad steps?
1: A hundred percent. And it actually ties very neatly to what I had been doing for work as a school psychologist as well. Your job is to find what a kid's baseline is. uh, What is their need? And you identify it. Uh, Let's say their need is an expanding Their social circle, and you see their baseline is that they can't hold a conversation for longer than three minutes, and it only has to be about one specific area of interest. Well, I think it might be attainable for that student to talk to somebody about two areas of interest and maybe find something that they have some overlap with with another peer. And I want them to be able to do that for three conversational turns you, me, you, me, you, me. You make it observable, attainable, but in that frustration level. And then once they master that, you determine what the area of need is and what's the new frustration level. And then that's their new goal. Um, And so that, that mentality had already been ingrained in me and I had been speaking that language in one world. And now I brought it to my world.
0: So then it sounds like the training that you had as a psychologist played a pretty large part. In your recovery, so do you feel that if you hadn't had some of those tools, that it might have been harder for you to accept and put together a plan, knowing that you know this could just be it?
1: I think the parts of it that helped were that I I had other disciplines floating around in my head. As a school psychologist, you're working with physical therapists and occupational therapists, and several members that are also part of a rehab team in a hospital. And so that combined with having had a a decade of practicing yoga under my belt were really critical when it came to relearning how to walk, figuring out my like vestibular sense, where my body is in space, already being able to speak some of that language. And those things combined with this plan of attack for, I know I'm not going to get out of the hospital bed and be fine. I'm not going to get up and give speeches at educational psychology conferences right off the bat but I do know how to retrain myself and measure some progress so I can maybe approximate the person that I was before. And then you just keep going and going and seeing what that new frustration level is. And now I feel much, much like who I was.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't think other than like the joke you made, like the shape of your head or some weird hairline or whatever, I don't think anybody would ever assume that you'd been through any trauma whatsoever. Like I'm just, I'm not seeing it in like speech patterns or lost words or lack of focus. Like people that go through severe traumatic brain injury, as I'm sure you know much better than I do, a lot of time it's evident in their behavior. And I'm I'm seeing none of that. I would never know that you went through anything, which in, in and of itself is just miraculous. Um, I'm
1: blessed for sure. I also check in with the fact that it's okay to not look like me. You know, there's like a big community of people that I want to normalize. This me is not the norm, but I've, I've been there. And, you know, I, I know that's not what you were getting at Zach, but I always make this qualifying statement when I speak to that part of not looking like other people who have been hurt that way, because I don't want anything about what I'm doing to ever put off somebody who has gone through it and is wondering why they can't be like me.
0: Yes. And that's exactly why I wanted to bring it up because I know that's an important part of the story that you're sharing. Um, So I wanted to make sure that that perspective was out there. Uh, The next thing that I want to dive into is frankly, just me being super, super curious, knowing that you're basically the mindset or the strategy that you're using is I'm going to get just a little bit better today than I was yesterday. And for anybody that were to look at, say that the one year progression, if you went from, I should be dead to, well, I'm going to be alive, but I should be a vegetable from, well, I'm not a vegetable, but you know, I can't walk. If you went through an entire year and suddenly you could jog from your house across the street to the next house, people would call it a miracle. However, somehow in a year, You got just a little bit better every day and ended up on American Ninja Warrior course. So I'm wondering, is there some additional secret sauce or something that happened that makes it go from, well, it's one little tiny step every day, but most regular, when I say regular, I put in quotes, but most regular people that haven't been through trauma never get to where you got. In fact, a very, very small percentage do, and they're probably taking small steps as well. So what do you think the difference was with this mindset, but also moving so far so fast?
1: I think part of this mindset is the foundation that came before the brain injury. Uh, One of the best contributing factors towards my recovery was that I was, well, one, young, but we don't have any control over that. But two, I had been physically active and that I had been using my body in a variety of different ways, yoga, boxing, tennis, weightlifting, just all sorts of different things to think about what my body was doing in space in so many different ways that when it came time to force my body to do what my mind wanted it to do, there was already a bit of a foundation. But that aside, there's, there's some things that can't, that I can't really explain. Uh, After a certain point, I kind of just throw my hands up and say,
0: it's a miracle. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topomat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. Well, one of the things that I want to extract and go a little bit deeper on, and maybe it's going to help answer this question, and maybe you can say that it has nothing to do with it, but I'm going to do a little bit of shameless self-promotion. For anybody that's listened to this podcast for a long time, they already know this story, but the very, very brief version for anybody new is that I spent about 10 years directing and producing a documentary film about the first quadriplegic to become a licensed scuba diver. And I learned a whole lot of lessons about life and how to achieve your goals. And frankly, I now teach The five-step go-far framework that he originally developed is now a core part of what I teach all of my students. But I think the most important takeaway for me from his mindset was that I was basically born without the use of my arms and my legs. I could have spent my entire life focusing on what I couldn't do, but instead I focused on what I still could do. And on a minute level, I've read about and heard from some of your uh, videos where you talk about this idea that, well, I know that because my right – the right hemisphere of my brain you know, has some issues that maybe I need to grab the holes with the right hand instead of the left because the left isn't as coordinated. And I think that this fundamental mindset that probably got you where you are, at least in part, was this idea of what can I do? Not, well, I can't use my left hand the way that I used to, so I might as well just skip anything where I have to grab it. You're like, screw it. My right hand still works. Let's just retrain my brain to do that. So talk about the kind of the mind-body connection and this idea of you understanding that I need to focus on things I am capable of.
1: I'll speak to that part first because I, I love that line of thought and where you're going with that. It's what we in education call compensatory strategies where you recognize that there is something that isn't a strength for you. But you plan for it, and you plan for things to go wrong. And similarly, actually, I don't, I don't talk about it very much. But I do uh, now. It's a good opportunity to say, like, I don't think any coaches or people that I train with know that I don't really have as good of control over the left side of my body as my right. But that is what's going through my head when I'm planning what I'm going to do on a course. You have to be honest with yourself, and that's part of accepting. I can't will myself to use this side of my body as well as I used to. And so I adjust, I can still do plenty of other things that people brain injury or not wouldn't be able to do. So let's run with that and let's play to my strength and let's use this strengths-based strategizing to find where I can be successful.
0: And It's starting to work. Well, I wouldn't say that it's starting to work. I would say that it's been working for a while, for sure. Uh, Because if I, having a little bit of experience, not the level of experience that you do, um, but I have just enough experience with the Ninja Warrior sports and actually being on the show as a rookie, that I don't take for granted how difficult it is to, number one, just be on the starting line, because a lot of people, and I'm sure that you've probably heard this more than once, and I hope you haven't, but you probably have. Oh, well, you just got on because your story. You have a sob story, and you get on American Ninja Warrior, and they don't care about the real athletes. It's just a TV show. I'm guessing you've heard that more than once, right? I, yep. Yeah, so that that's, that that's out there everywhere, and it drives me crazy when people say that. Um, but I know personally— how hard it is just to get yourself to the starting line, just so they, uh, and some of it, yes, it is a television show and it's not based on, you have to do X number of pull-ups or push-ups or anything else. If you have a good story, you do have a higher percentage of getting on the show. But the component most other people don't understand is if they believe that you have no skill whatsoever, or you're just going to hurt yourself, you're not going to get on the show. So I'm assuming you had to prove visually after they saw your story. It's like, well, yeah, but are we like going to be getting sued because you're going to hurt yourself on the course. So talk to me about how visually you convince them, no, no, I can actually do this. It's not just an inspirational story. I can actually compete.
1: Well, to be fair in year one, I will, I like leaned into being just a guy who is on Ninja warrior for having a good story. Cause my, my audition video was like, uh, you know, I'm climbing a rope on the Santa Monica pier and I'm doing some pull-ups and showing that like, you know, I'm doing box jumps and showing that my body is okay. I can handle like your everyday average levels of athleticism. And then I went out on the course for a sport that I was not very familiar in, and showed your everyday level of athleticism. But then between then and year two, of sending it in, like I'm I'm doing lachey lanes that were circulated on Sports Center, and like having some success in training that's showing, like, oh, this guy's actually i didn't I didn't just go. I went from a guy who was on Ninja Warrior for having a good story to like now being okay with calling myself a ninja. I knew all along, even after falling in year one, I was like, that wasn't the best I could do. I just needed more reps. And sure enough, I came out in a year two did get a little bit farther because more reps paid off. It is like as you said, getting to the starting line is a process getting yourself to start running is even more of a process. Uh, but I, I don't really take any offense to people say you're just there because you have a good story. Because yeah, I have a great story. And it can do a lot of good for people who even if they did just see somebody go out and fall on the second obstacle. It's like, wow, that guy was where I was and recovered well enough to like go and make it farther than some other contestants. And I take no offense to that because it's people who think you're you're going to need to prove yourself as being some sort of superstar athlete by talking back to it when really like I'm a guy who's making the most of my second chance at life and loving it. And I wanted to, go do that. And I had an end. So I'm having the time of my life.
0: Yeah. And it really comes back to the same idea that I keep talking about, which is taking responsibility. And this is one of the things that I see both, uh, if we're talking specifically about the ninja community, but just in general society at large is whenever they're not getting something that they want, they don't take responsibility and say, well, it's because of my actions or my choices. It's, well, that that guy just got lucky and he's got a better story than I do or whatever. Um, whether it's in Ninja Warrior or like in my industry in Hollywood, there are so many people that are saying, oh, well, it's it's all about luck. And it's about who you know. And it's such a hard industry to get into. And they don't realize that they have to take responsibility for the choices that they're making because that's what's going to lead them to where they are or are not getting um, and the the places that, that they want to be. But I guess that the other thing that just to kind of put that out there, um, and I've talked about this on a couple of other past episodes, but you mentioned like between year one and year two, it was this transition that you made from, well, it was just, it was an honor to be here, right? It was an honor to be nominated and be on the stage versus I can do better. I could have done better than that. Now it's not just about a story. It's about I actually wanted to put in the reps and um, and accomplish something. But you weren't giving yourself permission to call yourself an American Ninja Warrior. You said being one, it almost took you like until the second year. It's so funny because that's exactly where I am now. Do you know who Alex Weber is? Of course. I love Alex. Yes, uh, so, I had Alex on the show a few weeks ago, and I'm not sure um, if the, the audience will have listened to that by the time this comes out. I think they probably will have. Um, but we talked about this idea of giving yourself permission to call yourself something, right? And I've been teaching my students for years, like, for example, as a Hollywood film and television editor and director and producer, I've told people that say, Oh, well, I'm just an assistant. I'm like, Well, nobody's going to give you permission or hire you to be something until you've given yourself permission to be that first. Right. So if you want to be an editor, you call yourself an editor. But then I realized I was not taking a dose of my own medicine because I too did not do well in my rookie season. And I have not been giving myself the permission to call myself an American Ninja Warrior. So if somebody would say, Oh my God, that's amazing. You were on the show, you're an American Ninja Warrior. And in my head, I'm like, Yeah, but am I really? Like, did I did I really accomplish what I wanted to? And I think that's that's number one a hard thing that I've been working through personally and what I'm doing this year is I'm putting in the reps and then some. So I feel more confident about my hand needs to grab the rope here. My foot needs to go here. Here's how the lache works. So I just physically feel more confident, but I've had to convince myself as well that I actually belong on the stage. So I'm curious, did you ever go through something similar to that?
1: So did not know Alex did this a few weeks ago, but I love that you brought him up because Alex has a thing about what the label of a former athlete did for him and how categorizing himself as someone who is you know who liked sports who played sports but who no longer did that what that title did and how how it just saps your energy if you don't let yourself be in something you've you've earned you've earned or don't let yourself or stick to something that is Not what you really are. Alex isn't a former athlete, and he shed that and became a great competitor. You are a ninja warrior. You went, you ran, you competed, you got on that starting line, you dealt with the stage fright, you did it. But you know, we go through the same things, and it's it's natural to not. I'm plenty of people show up to the starting line and are like, I have arrived, and this is me. But it is so human to to second guess and and have all these ideas about what really accurately describes what you think you deserve. That's not how the world would describe you. I'm sure there are plenty of people in your life, Zach, who have said you are a Ninja warrior though. You went and you did it. You got on the show and you competed. That is literally what a Ninja warrior is. And you're not using that metric because we tell ourselves all sorts of other things but we can also talk back to those things. And that's why Alex isn't a former athlete anymore. You and I are Ninja Warriors. It's it's what we talk back to and not letting ourselves get lost in that initial despair or that initial not feeling deserving because our performance didn't live up to this expectation that we had for ourselves.
0: So how can we apply all of these things that we've talked about to people that have absolutely no interest in American Ninja Warrior? And they're like, really? Like, just not my thing. Because you don't spend all day long dealing with other athletes and American Ninja Warriors, you're dealing with people that just want to get through the day or just want to overcome grief or trauma or disabilities or whatever it is. So if I have no interest in athletics or sports or competing or any of the things we've talked about, but I just want to be a better version of myself, how do we apply some of that? How do you help your students do that or clients or anything else? How do we just help a general person apply what we've talked about today?
1: Part of it is accepting the journey that you've been on, who you are, and what it is that you're facing. Part of it is striving for more. And the balance is those of us who are really taking this head on are the ones who are doing both at the same time.
0: The other thing that I would add to that too, and this is something that basically it's the the word that Alex and I used, at least we should turn it into a drinking game and we'd probably (coughs) kill people if we did. But we use the word failure over and over and over and over. Um, And failure has a really bad connotation. But Alex and I essentially, I even introduced him on the show and I said, this is going to be a show between two giant failures about two people who fail over and over and over and over all day long, every single day. So talk to me about all the things that people perceive as failures, that if I were on the outside looking in, watching your journey, I might've called a failure, but in your mind, it was just feedback. It was just information and I iterated on it.
1: Oh my goodness, plenty. Um, Part of it comes from being a person who boxed, had a brain injury and then became public about it. Plenty of people who say you deserved it. Why should I listen to anything that you have to say? and then you're going off and you're doing ninja, there's there's nothing that this guy could say that I would take seriously. Plenty, so much failure in my personal life, in my professional life, in my ninja life, what I train. It's it's actually, I was having this conversation recently with a friend, like a willingness to go out and fail. You have to accept that failure is part of the process and you have to still want more. You don't go out expecting to fail. And so there's another instance of balance. If you expect to fail, the most likely thing that's going to happen is failure. But you have to go and and practice failing. You literally practice that, at least um, in some of my ninja experience, was learning how to fall safely. You get comfortable with that. And then you kind of increase that frustration tolerance again. In terms of examples of, of failures in my life, the, f- the first thing that comes to mind is largely that this brain injury was self-imposed. I did that to myself. I'm not a victim and I've never once claimed to be because that's just a failure on my part. I just didn't let myself be consumed by it.
0: Where I would love to, to end the conversation because uh, I want to be very respectful of your time. But there's a, there's an exercise that I've been doing with some of my uh, recent guests. And I think it might just become like a, a new thing because it's been um, a really interesting final conversation point. And it's going to kind of help us wrap all this up and talk about the the failures, the successes, the mindsets. But what we're going to do is we're going to jump into a time machine. Right now, you're going to jump into this time machine and you're going to time travel to the version of you that just woke up and has no idea what's going on, you have no idea if you're ever gonna feed yourself again, if you're ever gonna walk, certainly not thinking about American Ninja Warrior. What is the advice or what is the story that you tell yourself to your version of you right after you wake up after this injury?
1: Honor this version of you. I didn't even have to think about it because I still live by that. Everything that I do now, I do it asking myself that question of, is this honoring the version of me on my deathbed, literally just taken off of death's doorstep. That's the advice. Just love yourself. Do what would be in honor of this version of you.
0: I cannot imagine a better way to live life than by that one motto. I mean, that that just encapsulates it perfectly. And I had no idea that that was going to be your answer. I'm always interested in anticipating what the answer might be based on doing the research or watching the videos or reading the books or whatever. Every single time I ask this question, I get an answer I never expected. And it's just like life changing. So uh, yeah, if, uh, if what I always like to do is I like teach my students how to ask better questions of themselves because you ask better questions, you get better answers and you get better quality of life. And it sounds like if you were forced to only ask one question every day of the rest of your life, it's... Are the things that I did today honoring the best version of me?
1: Yeah, completely. I love this question, by the way. This is something that I might take with me and and use in other avenues Please do so.
0: Yes. Um, I I do not have a trademark on it. So you can please use it uh, to whether you're talking to your students or otherwise, um, because I find that it's a really useful exercise for people to gain a little bit of perspective about what it is that they've really been through. But that perspective can be lent to other people that are going through it. Completely. Right? Because again... The the mathematical odds of having more than maybe one or two people listening today that actually have a traumatic brain injury in a similar story, probably pretty slim. But that's one of the things I love about Ninja Warrior is that it's like the best metaphor of life ever. I think that sports and athletics in general are a great metaphor for life. But Ninja is like the epitome because there are literal obstacles that you have to learn how to overcome literally one step at a time. And that's the perfect metaphor for how you have to overcome everything in life.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, honestly, just because you brought this up, I kind of, I keep me doing this stuff kind of on the down low. And I've only recently started telling people like, you know, my students and other coworkers that this is something that I do. But um, around the time that I did, they said, would you please speak to our graduating class at last year in the spring? Uh, And part of it and something that really stuck with me in the speech was I had the opportunity to say to these kids who have been through some of the most horrific circumstances you could possibly imagine and betrayed by the people who were supposed to take the most care of them is the obstacles don't care about what we've been through. And it's my favorite part of Ninja and I think an important lesson for anybody dealing with sort of adversity, brain injury or not to bear in mind.
0: Oh, I can't even imagine how to close it better than that. Like these, these, i just for the record, this advice is so good. I'm totally stealing all of this. Please. You can take my questions, use them on your students. I'm going to use these on my students because between the idea of, am I honoring the version of me that I want to and the obstacles don't care what we've been through? I mean, my God, if that's not a bumper sticker for life, I don't know what it <laughs> is. It's brilliant. I love that saying that that's a t-shirt right there. That's like a t-shirt. I absolutely love it. Um, so on that note, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time this evening to talk about your story, to be so open, to share some of the things uh, that you haven't really shared in uh, some of the other forums, which is why I like to do this in longer form, is you really get to go deeper into the stories you can't in a newspaper or even on American Ninja Warrior. So I appreciate you being here. And for those of you uh, that are listening today, if you want to connect with Chinna, you want to learn more about him, you want to, you know, send him an email, share your story. For those that are listening, how can they do that?
1: Uh the best ways are definitely, well, Reddit is where all of this sort of started. And I do continue to post updates, my username on there um, to show you how big of a dork I am. It's Qui give it to you. I like. You know, Qui Gon <laughs> from Star Wars, and then the X, DMX song "X Gon Give It To You." So Qui Gon Give oh It Oh my to god, you. that's amazing! Um, so there's that. I I do regularly correspond with people through Reddit who have reached out with similar stories. So other survivors usually get me through there, and then uh, on Instagram as well at Great Wall of China. So uh, which is genius Wall-
0: again? Love it.
1: <laughs> um, I'm I'm a really corny person, but I swear I can be very heartfelt and sincere as well. But yeah, um, Reddit, Instagram are usually the best ways to to correspond.
0: Well, I I love it. We're going to make sure to put a link in all the show notes. And I don't want you to apologize or put a disclaimer for the corniness. (laughs) I myself teach a a host of hundreds of students how to better themselves. And I make sure in our Slack community, we have a channel that's called Dad Jokes.
1: Oh, I love it. So I'm right
0: there with you. (laughs) Got to have dad jokes, right? We've got to have some levity and we have to enjoy the process. So never apologize for your corniness again.
1: Appreciate that. Dad jokes is where I'm
0: at, 100%. Yeah, me too. Uh, So on that note, I can't thank you enough. And I'm really excited for all of those that are going to have the opportunity to hear your story and be inspired by it. Hey, thanks for having me, Zach. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show.